origin of Islam. Did Muhammad receive an angelic visitation or could it have been something else? Was Islam spread through peaceful means or by the sword? When did the battle between the Sunni and the Shiites begin and why do they continue to fight against each other today? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host Pat Zukran. Pat is a national and international speaker, teacher, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat reveals the history and spread of Islam, presenting facts that you won't hear in the popular media today. You may be surprised by what you learn in the show on the brief history of Muhammad and Islam. Let's join Pat now for this intriguing study. We've been going through our series on Islam, the history of Islam with Muhammad and the rise and spread of Islam. We covered some of the basic teachings, the Articles of Faith of Islam, and today we're covering the basic practices of Islam, the five pillars of Islam. These are the five basic practices of Muslims throughout the world. Now the first pillar is called the Confession or the Shahada, the confession that allows one to enter into the House of Islam. And it states, the confession is, there's one God, Allah, and his prophet Muhammad. And if you recite that in faith, you may enter into the house of Islam. And you repeat that repeatedly, especially in your prayers and throughout the day. Every Muslim will recite this continually throughout the day. Prayers five times a day, kneeling and bowing towards Mecca. That is the second pillar there. So if you see Muslims praying five times a day facing Mecca, that's what is going on. And when you go into countries where and places where there is a mosque five times a day, you'll hear the call to prayer coming from the minaret towers there. Now, early on, Muhammad taught that we are to pray towards Jerusalem. But when his message was rejected by the Jewish people, and he changed it and prayers were to be done facing Mecca. The third pillar is almsgiving, 2% to the poor. Then we have fasting during the daylight hours of Ramadan, remembering Muhammad's migration from Mecca to Medina. And there you're to fast during the daylight hours. You may eat then at night during the month of Ramadan. If you remember the Superstar basketball player Akeem Olajuwon, they were greatly concerned during the playoffs because the playoffs fell on the month of Ramadan there. And they were concerned because many of the games were in the day and Akeem Olajuwon, being a devout Muslim, was observing Ramadan. And so they had to watch him carefully throughout the game to make sure that uh, he didn't get dehydrated there during the playoffs. Then we have what's called the Haji. This is the pilgrimage to Mecca. Every Muslim man is required at least once in his lifetime is if he is able to go to Mecca and to do that sacred pilgrimage there at the great Kaaba shrine there in Mecca and to perform all the rituals there it's a sacred city and a sacred time and as soon as you get off the plane you need to purify yourself and wear white and the men go there and perform the sacred ritual there at the sacred temple the Kaaba there in Mecca and finally, I'm going to add one here called Jihad or Holy War. When a religious leader declares war, all Muslim men are required to go into battle for the sake of Islam. And if one dies in Jihad, then it is taught that one will go to paradise and receive great reward. 
And there, if you are in paradise, there you'll receive the highest status in heaven for those who die in jihad. Now, there's the question, what is jihad? Many say that Islam is a peaceful religion, a religion of tolerance and peace. And therefore, jihad means a spiritual struggle, like you know, the spiritual struggle of the Christian, the spiritual armor we're taught in Ephesians chapter 6, that this is a spiritual thing, or a, a, my fight for justice, or freedom, or equal rights of all people. Well, when we come to understand jihad, the best way to understand it is to see what the Quran teaches about jihad, and how did the prophet of Islam, Muhammad, the perfect example, how did he apply the teachings of jihad? As Christians, when we want to look at how to apply biblical teachings, we look at Jesus Christ. And secondly, we look at the apostles, the disciples of Christ. In Islam, we should look at the teachings of the Quran and to see how it was applied, we need to look at the example of Muhammad. He is the perfect example. And if we want to, we can look at the next four caliphs, the early disciples or followers of Muhammad and see how they apply the teaching of jihad. So let's take a look at the teachings of jihad. What was taught by Muhammad and the Quran? What is the example that he set for us? And what is it that exactly is taught in the Quran? Now, Bernard Lewis, perhaps the greatest Muslim scholar here in America, Princeton professor of Islam, says this in his book, The Crisis of Islam. He says this, The overwhelming majority of early authorities citing the relevant passages of the Quran, the commentaries, and the traditions of the Prophet discuss jihad in military terms. Jihad is thus a religious obligation. For most of the 14 recorded centuries of Muslim history, jihad was most commonly interpreted to mean an armed struggle for the defense or advancement of Muslim power. He states, the more common interpretation and that of the overwhelming majority of classical jurists and commentators present jihad as an armed struggle for Islam against the infidels and the apostates. So that comes from perhaps the greatest Islam scholar here in the United States. Now, in order to understand Islam also, you need to understand the two divisions in Islam. The world is divided into two halves. The first half is Dar al-Islam, or the house of Islam. All Muslims belong to this house. The other house is Dar al-Harb, the house of war. And that's the rest of the world. So the world is divided into two parts, the house of Islam and everyone else belongs to the house of war. When it comes to jihad, what does the Quran teach? How did Muhammad say to treat the unbelievers? Well, let's read some passages in the Quran. And I'm reciting the Quran from Abdullah Yusuf Ali. It's one of the most widely accepted English translations of the Quran. Chapter 8 of the Quran says this, Say to the unbelievers, if now they desist from unbelief, their past will be forgiven them. But if they persist, the punishment of those before them is already a matter of warning for them. And fight them until there is no more tumult or oppression, and the religion becomes Allah's entirety. So the goal of Islam is to bring the entire world under the banner of Islam. And it's done through jihad. Chapter 2 of the Quran, Fight in the cause of Allah. Those who fight you and slay them wherever you catch them and turn them out from where they have turned you out and fight them until there's no more tumult or oppression and there prevail justice and faith in Allah. Chapter 9 of the Quran, and this is the last, many believe to be the last surah 
or revelation given to the Prophet Muhammad. So it is the most authoritative. And it's often called the Surah of the Sword. Chapter 9, verse 5 says, Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem. Later on in verse 29, it says, Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and His Prophet, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are people of the book. That would be Jews and Christians. Until they pay the jizya, the jizya is the heavy tax, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. So unbelievers, according to the Quran, you have three choices. You can convert, you can meet the sword, or once Islam conquers then you may live as second-class citizens, paying the heavy jizya, or the heavy tax there. Chapter 47 of the Quran. When you meet unbelievers, smite their necks. Then when you have made wide slaughter among them, tie fast the bonds, then set them free, either by grace or ransom, till the war lays down its load. And those who are slain in the way of God, he will not send their works astray. He will guide them and depose their minds aright, and he will admit them to paradise that he has made known to them. And so Muhammad commanded here in the Quran to battle the unbelievers and those who die in the cause of jihad will enter into paradise. Chapter 98 of the Quran. Verily, those who disbelieve in the religion of Islam, the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad, from among the people of the scripture, Jews and Christians, will abide in the fire of hell. They are the worst of creatures. Chapter 8 of the Quran, I will instill terror into the hearts of unbelievers, smite you above their necks, and smite all their fingertips off them. This because they contended against Allah and His Apostle. Allah is strict in punishment. Chapter 5 of the Quran, O you who believe, take not the Jews and the Christians for your friends and protectors. They are but friends and protectors to each other. And he among you that turns to them for friendship is of them. Surely Allah does not guide the unjust people. So according to these passages here in the Quran, how should we define jihad? Simply as a spiritual struggle? It appears that the Quran is teaching military engagement here in the cause of the spread of Islam. Then not only do you need to look at what the Quran teaches, but how did Muhammad apply the teachings of jihad? How did Muhammad live? Well, Muhammad was a warrior. According to Ibn Ishaq, he fought in nearly 30 wars. And so you look at what the Quran teaches and you look at how Muhammad and his early followers applied jihad and you'll discover that it was in a military uh, engagement. That is how jihad was defined. Now, its definition may have expanded in our day to include spiritual war and uh, battle for justice and equality. But in the context in which Muhammad taught and which the Quran teaches, if you read these passages, jihad it's hard to define it other than a military campaign. So those that you see in the Middle East, these groups, often they are citing the Quran to uphold the various practices, the military engagement that is going on there in the Middle East. They often quote these passages in the Quran. Well, often what you hear in the press and what you heard in speeches by our leaders where it talks about tolerance, that there's no compulsion in religion. They're quoting from the Quran. Now remember, the Quran is divided into two sections, the Mecca Surahs and the Medina Surahs. Now remember, the Mecca Surahs, Muhammad was beginning and he was appealing to the Christians and the Jews that he was indeed one of their prophets. And so those verses are more tolerant. But when he is rejected 
and then he migrates to Medina and gathers a following, that's when everything changes. And these passages that I just read for you on jihad and intolerance of unbelievers, and he names Christians and Jews specifically intolerance and jihad against them, they arise in the Medina surahs. So often when these leaders are reading peaceful passages, they're reading the Mecca surahs. Now, what's important to understand is this. The law of abrogation in Islam. What is the law of abrogation? Well, it teaches that the new surahs, the later surahs, override or abrogate the earlier surahs. And so though the Mecca surahs may teach tolerance, they are abrogated. They're overridden by the Medina surahs, which teach jihad on the unbelievers. That is the law of abrogation. Now, some will state, well, Islam was merely fighting defensive battles. And, you know, just like the Israelites, you know, as they were a fledgling community, they had to fight defensive battles. But these were defensive battles. Well, that's a very difficult one to accept. Because remember, when Islam spread, they conquered all of North Africa. In fact, the greatest libraries and churches were found in Alexandria, Egypt. That was one of the key cities of the Christian world. It was completely wiped out. And churches were burned and Christians were killed throughout North Africa. They crossed over the Mediterranean into Spain and were coming into Europe, into France, until they were repelled. The Battle of Tours there by Charles Martel. Then they went eastward conquering the entire Middle East. There were grand churches. One of the most important churches in the Christian world was the church at Antioch. And of course, that was wiped out. And they conquered throughout the Middle East and came into Turkey. And of course, Constantinople was perhaps the capital of the Christian world there. there was, that city was wiped out and the churches, uh, many were burned and destroyed. And the Muslims changed the name to Istanbul. And they were coming then from the east. So it's hard to reconcile that indeed Islam was spread and came to the shores of Europe there, all fighting defensive battles. That's a tough one to accept there. Also, when you read Ibn Ishaq in several of the accounts and villages that were raided, it's hard to accept that these were defensive battles. You know, I remember I was speaking at the university and there were several Muslims there who opposed me and said, no, jihad was fought. These were all defensive battles. And I explained to them, well, how do you explain Islam spreading throughout North Africa, the Middle East, and coming onto the shores of France, all fighting defensive battles? They gave some answers, and then I said, how do you explain things like the raid of Kabar? According to Ibn Ishaq, remember, this is Muhammad's oldest biographer here, and he records on the raid of the Jewish farming village of Kabar there. And Ibn Ishaq re records the words, the account written supposedly by Muhammad or one of his followers, that... Muhammad and his men waited until sunrise and then attacked the men of Kabar. And Ishaq writes, quote, We met the workers of Kabar coming out in the morning with their spades and baskets. See, this was a Jewish farming village. This was not a military fortress here. These were farmers. And according to Ibn Ishaq here, Muhammad and his men killed 93 men during the raid. And Muhammad sought to obtain the riches in the city. And he ordered his men to torture the leader of the village of Kabar, Kinana, so that he would reveal the location of the hidden treasure. Ibn Ishaq records that Muhammad ordered his men to, quote, torture him until you extract what he has. So he kindled a fire with flint and steel on his chest until he was nearly dead. Then the apostle delivered him to Muhammad. 
and he struck off his head in revenge for his brother Mahmoud. And so in this story, Muhammad and his men raid the farming village of Kabar here. They take Kinana and they think he knows where treasure is and they torture him all day by burning coals upon his chest and then when he's nearly dead, they chop his head off. And then seeing Kinana's wife Safiya, she was a Jewish woman, seeing that she was beautiful, Muhammad took her as one of his wives and it reads in Ibn Ishaq's biography that he raped her all night long. So that is one of the accounts of the many of Muhammad's way in which he applied jihad and spread Islam throughout the Middle East. So it's hard to argue that these were all defensive battles in defense of attacks upon Islam there. Now others will argue, well what about holy war in the Old Testament? God sanctioned and commanded Israel to holy war to wipe out civilizations there. Well there's a difference between jihad and holy war. First of all, jihad is against all unbelievers. In the Old Testament, holy war was during a time of theocracy when God used Israel to punish civilizations that had gone corrupt and were no longer redeemable. So holy war wasn't against the entire unbelieving world, but just against specific civilizations that were morally corrupt and no longer redeemable. Those civilizations practicing child sacrifices and temple prostitutes, they were no longer able to be redeemed. Second, in jihad, people were allowed and commanded by Muhammad to take the spoils as part of their reward. In the Old Testament, holy war spoils were forbidden. People could not plunder the city. In fact, the entire city and all that was in there was to be completely destroyed and the Jews were forbidden to take the plunder from the city. Jihad is against all the unbelieving world. Holy war is on specific civilizations that are named in the Old Testament, the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, you know, the Philistines. Specific civilizations are to be named. So if you want to apply holy war teaching today, you're going to have to find some Amalekites, you know, and some Jebusites. And then Jihad is throughout the world. Holy war is in the land of Israel. When Israel was entering in the land to establish and conquer the Holy Land and establish a homeland, that's where a holy war was commanded. And then in protection of the Holy Land, you notice that the Israelites did not expand their borders throughout the entire Middle East and into Europe and North Africa. It was there in the territory that was promised to Abraham. And once they conquered that territory, then holy war was commanded in defense of that holy land or in judgments against these corrupt civilizations there. So that's a difference between Old Testament holy war and jihad. Then a final argument also comes up in the Crusades. Well, what about the Crusades? Well, let's take a look at the context of the Crusades. First of all, what instigated the Crusades? People often don't ask that. What was it that instigated the Crusades? You know, did the Christians in Europe say, hey, let's just go kill some people down there in the Middle East? Well, no. What instigated the Crusades was that for 400 years, the Christians were wiped out of the Middle East, you know, out of Israel and northern Africa and in the Middle East. And the Muslim threat came upon the shores of France there. And from the east, they conquered the entire Middle East and wiped out and burned the churches there and had conquered Constantinople and were coming in from the east. And that's when the Bishop of Constantinople called to the Bishop of Rome for help. 
And that's what began the Crusades. So for nearly 400 years, the Christians were being wiped out there in the Middle East and in Africa, and an Islamic threat was coming into Europe. And so that's what instigated the Crusades. Second of all, how long did the Crusades last? Well, history shows the Crusades lasted maybe 80 to 100 years. Okay, Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. Right? So 100 years does not represent the full scope and character of Christian church history. And finally, killing in the name of Christ goes against what Jesus and the apostles taught. I, we can point to you passages throughout the New Testament that something like killing in the name of Christ goes against the teachings of the Bible. It's a little bit more difficult with the Quran. It's hard to point to passages and show that, well, killing in the name of Allah goes against the teachings of the Quran. I just read you passages there of jihad there. We can point to the example of Christ and the apostles and say they did not endorse killing in the name of Jesus. Well, that's hard to do with Muhammad. Muhammad was a warrior and he fought in 30 battles. It's hard to point to the example of Muhammad and say the same thing. And so the Crusades hardly represent the true practice of Christianity and the history of the Christian church. So when you look at it in its context, you know, what is it that instigated the Crusades? And then you look at the New Testament and Old Testament teachings. It's very difficult to justify something like jihad using the teachings of the Bible, comparing it to Holy War and the Crusades. Now, having said, let me say this, and let me be clear on this before I'm quoted out of context. The vast majority of Muslims out there and Muslim people that you're going to meet, Muslim people, I would say the vast majority, are peaceful people, are wonderful, peaceful people whom you can engage in great discussion and dialogue and build wonderful friendships with. I'm sure most of the Muslims you met here in, in the United States and in the West are peaceful, wonderful people. What I am saying is that the religion of Islam, that Muhammad and the things that he taught, that is not a peaceful or tolerant religion. Okay? So let's make a distinction there. Muslim people, the vast majority you're going to meet are great and wonderful, peaceful people that want peace and a better life. That's why a lot of them come here to the United States and the West. However, let's be clear. I'm saying Muhammad was a warrior and the things that he taught in the Quran and the religion of Islam is not a peaceful and tolerant religion there. There will be more you know, radical groups of Islam that will continue to wage war upon the West, and so we're going to have to defeat them militarily. But also, we are going to have to defeat them intellectually with the Word of God and with the truth from the Word of God, if we hope to bring about change there in the Middle East. So that is a brief history of Islam, some of its basic teaching and its basic doctrines. I hope that that brings some clarity and understanding to you of the religion of Islam. My goal here was not to denigrate a particular religion or anything, but to present the truth of what it is teaching. And the sources that I have quoted, the Quran, the Hadith, the earliest biography of Muhammad, Ibn Ishaq, and some of its top theologians and scholars, I wanted to present a fair picture, but a clear picture of what Islam teaches. And I hope that brings some clarity to the teachings of Islam. Some of this has been very difficult to teach and I'm sure for some of you difficult to listen to, but I wanted to present a fair, clear teaching from the most authoritative sources of what Islam teaches. 
Thank you for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. I look forward to next time as we continue our series on Islam here on Evidence and Answers. Thank you for joining us right here on Evidence and Answers. I hope you're enjoying Pat's series on Islam. If you missed any part of this show or would like to order the entire series of messages on Islam, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. This show relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us here next time as we continue our series on Islam right here on Evidence and Answers.